Hi, I'm Tony Hines and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, some great things coming up on the show. Stay tuned. talk about Europe's gas supply problem in this episode. What can Europe do now that the gas supply has been cut off by Russia to Europe? Well, Russia's turned off the gas yet again. And many think this is a deliberate act as part of an economic war against Europe and a retaliation in respect of the sanctions taken against the Russian Federation, at the start of the invasion of Ukraine. 167 million cubic metres of gas can pass through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline on a daily basis, flowing from St. Petersburg, or near to St. Petersburg, through to the northeast of Germany. But they've turned it off now, and it's going to be closed for at least three days, probably longer, and the gas flowing through that uh, pipeline, in any case, is only about 20% of what the capacity is. And so that's put pressure on prices. Prices of gas on the world market are approximately 400 to 450% higher than they were just a year ago. And they're likely to go higher if they keep the gas turned off, especially in the winter months when demand will be higher. Germany is well placed to cope with this because they have 80% of the storage capacity now filled with gas, and they claim that that can see them through the winter months with some of the other actions that are taken to lower demand. Spain and Italy are looking to Algeria to acquire gas during those winter months, and other countries are on a free-for-all on the world market, and those gas prices are likely to make big profits for some companies. Not least of all, Gazprom, who's selling the gas to India and China, and, of course, to wherever they can find a market. So, it looks like this is going to continue until the war in Ukraine is completed. Another story in the news this week is that global oil companies are pumping billions of dollars into offshore drilling sites. And this reverses a long-term trend in reduction of that spend. Some of these projects are in very remote areas in the iceberg waters far off Canada's Atlantic coast. Surging oil prices, of course, are encouraging the investment, along with Europe's mounting energy demand and the war in Ukraine. Offshore production sites are more expensive to build than onshore shale, which, of course, was the trend during the last decade. But once they're up and running, they can turn profits at lower prices than other forms of production. That's according to Rystad Energy. They're also in for the long haul. They're designed to pump oil for decades. Of course, this won't do anything for the targets towards net zero for greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 to slow climate change. So this is one downturn to this new trend. But offshore projects generate fewer emissions per barrel than other forms of oil production because of the scale economies that they have. But overall, they would increase the global 
uh, pollution. And of course, spills from those oil fields offshore are far more difficult to resolve. One of the most remote developments is near Canada. The Bay du Nord project, 500 kilometres or 311 miles offshore of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's in international waters and requires Canada to pay royalties to the United Nations. Canada has a goal of lowering its own emissions by 40 to 45% by 2030 from the 2005 levels. But they have approved this Bay du Nord project in April, despite the environmental concerns. Last year, 40% of Europe's natural gas came through the pipeline from Russia, and the deliveries totaled about 155 billion cubic metres. That's billion, not million. Million was the daily amount. Billion was the total. It comes via Ukraine. The gas goes mainly to Austria, Italy, Slovakia, and other Eastern European states. Ukraine has closed the Sokranova transit pipeline that runs through Russian-occupied territory in the east of the country. And European countries have been looking for alternative supplies, including some cut off by Russia after rejecting a demand that they pay in rubles. Germany still needs Russian gas, but they might be sufficient for this winter if they can refill the storage. And they seem to have done that so far to an 80% capacity level. Alternative routes into Europe do not go via Ukraine, and they include the Yamal Europe pipeline, which crosses Belarus and Poland to Germany. Belarus, of course, is supporting Russia in its war with Ukraine. Moscow has placed sanctions on the owner of the Polish part of the Yamal Europe pipeline. Poland says it can manage without reverse gas flow on the Yamal pipeline. Nord Stream 1, of course, has only been running at 20% of its capacity since July The Kremlin says that uh, it's Western sanctions and they're unable to get equipment for maintenance from Canada. Germany, of course, withdrew certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia because of the Ukraine war. And it's been importing from Britain, Denmark, Norway and the Netherlands via pipelines. Norway is Europe's second biggest gas supplier behind Russia and it's been raising production to help the European Union towards its target of ending reliance on fossil fuels by 2027. Britain's Centrica has a deal with Norway's Equinor for extra supply for the next three winters. Equinor, of course, is seeking to also develop offshore oil platforms. Southern Europe can receive Aziri gas via the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline to Italy and Trans-Anatolian Natural Gas Pipeline through Turkey. The United States has said it can supply 15 billion cubic metres of liquefied natural gas, LNG, to Europe this year. But LNG plants are producing at full capacity and a blast at a major LNG export terminal in Texas will knock that one out until late November. So you have to remember this is a dangerous business, even in normal times. Europe's LNG terminals have limited capacity for extra imports. So, there's a problem of storage. Poland relies on about 50% of its gas consumption coming from Russia. That's about 10 billion cubic metres. Spain is trying to revive a project to build a third gas connection through the Pyrenees Mountains. But France has said new LNG terminals 
which can be made to float would be a quicker and cheaper solution than a pipeline. A number of nations will try and fill gaps in different ways through new renewable energy, nuclear energy, hydropower or coal. In Germany they've reverted back to some coal production and they've stopped the closure of some coal-powered plants that generate electricity. So there's different strategies. They're running to stand still presently. At the end of August, the European Union had gas in storage of 893.9 terawatt hours. That's about 80.35 of the percentage to its full capacity. And if you look across the countries in the European Union, Austria has close to 64 terawatt hours, Belgium 7.7, Bulgaria 3.5, Croatia 3.7, Czech Republic about 36, Denmark 8.7, France 120.9, Germany 206, Hungary 42, Italy 159.7, Latvia 11.9, Netherlands 108, Poland 36, Portugal 3, Romania 24, Slovakia 27, Spain 29, Sweden close to 1. And then if we look at the non-European country of the United Kingdom, it has just 10, and that's 100% capacity. So it's at 100% capacity, but it just has 10 terawatt hours. Ukraine has 89. So looking across those numbers for gas storage against capacity, you can see that the United Kingdom stands at 100% according to these figures, which are supplied by the Aggregated Gas Storage Inventory Organisation. But the problem for the UK is because the storage is so woefully low, that's why we're experiencing some of the highest unstable prices in the market. Now, this has been going on for some considerable time. They haven't built any new storage capacity to hold gas supplies. There's been a wish, of course, to move to renewables, and you can understand why they might be reluctant to do so, but it's inadequate for the size of the country. Latvia has a similar amount of gas stored, but it's a much smaller country with a much smaller population. And so securing the asset for the United Kingdom is, of course, a government responsibility. And energy is one of what those people like Jürgen, who writes on energy, call the commanding heights of the economy. And so to leave those at risk and to actually be at risk to global markets is indefensible. The regulatory authorities in the United Kingdom for Energy, Ofgem, has been pretty weak for some considerable time. It doesn't really control the market in the way it should, and it's supposed to put a cap on prices, but of course, capping prices at such high levels does nothing to protect the customer. There is a growing case to reorganise and reform the regulatory authorities, and many are calling for renationalisation of some of those energy companies, because the market clearly isn't working, in this case, in the United Kingdom. It's a government responsibility to secure strategic assets such as energy, food and other assets in that category. And so there's a failure on part of government, but there's also a failure on part of government to regulate the regulator. 
when energy corporations are in so few hands, it's clearly the case that they have what economists would refer to as an oligopoly, which means essentially a monopoly amongst the few. And if you've got a monopoly, you can earn excessive rent. And that's exactly what's happening in the market. They can earn excessive rent. That means excessive profit. Now, the energy companies claim, of course, that they're not making any money because they're paying prices on a world market. But don't forget, those same energy companies are the ones who invest in the oil fields, in the gas fields, and actually make the profit from them that they distribute to shareholders. Those are investors, often institutional investors, all over the globe. So people are making money out of this energy crisis, and there should be no doubt about that. It comes at the expense of the customer. And any market that has such controlled supply in that way and exploits customers in that way needs to be heavily regulated. Earlier, I talked about the terawatt hours that each country had, which is an important indicator of how prepared they are to deal with the disruption from the Russian shortage of gas. Now, Russian gas flowing through Nord Stream 1, I said, had been under 20%. And in fact, Europe has weaned itself away from that Russian supply. And during the last month, it only took about 10% or just over 10% of the supply from Russia as a proportion of its total. And if we look back at the numbers again on capacity and how prepared each country is, then obviously Austria with its 64 terawatt hours in storage has about 67% of its capacity filled. Belgium has 89% of its capacity filled. Denmark about 94% capacity filled, France 92% nearly, Germany 84%, Hungary 62%, Italy 82%, 77% in the Netherlands, 99% in Poland, 100% in Portugal, and Spain about 84%. And the United Kingdom, although it has 100% of its capacity filled, we have to realise that that capacity is very low in comparison to the other countries. So it's completely inadequate. And it's this that puts the United Kingdom at more risk than most of the other countries in Europe. Because the United Kingdom, although it doesn't directly import very much gas, it it was lower than 5% of the total of the gas it did import previously, but it now doesn't import gas from Russia because of sanctions. But although it doesn't actually directly import gas from Russia, and so is not affected by the reduction in supply from Russia, it's affected by the reduction in supply from Russia because that reduction in supply has pushed up the price of gas everywhere else in the market. And so any gas that the United Kingdom purchases on the world market is going to be volatile. And that's likely to take place not just for this year but next year and it could possibly be longer than that. It depends how long this disruption to the world gas market is allowed to continue. Geopolitics of course is a large part of what happens in the energy market and it always has been. We can think of previous energy crises and we can see from those and we should have learnt lessons from those that with such a scarce resource, energy brings about 
conflict between nations over those resources. Now, the Pulitzer Prize-winning energy expert Daniel Jurgen writes on this topic and gives some interesting views about how oil and gas have shaken the global order. And when we look at what Jurgen has written, you can see that he acknowledges the rising tensions amongst nations and the geopolitics at play. He says once the power was shaped by economics and military capabilities and geography, by grand strategy and calculated ambition, by suspicion and fear, by the contingent and the unexpected. But the other power that comes is from energy, oil, gas, coal, wind, solar, and from splitting atoms, and the power that comes from policies that seek to reorder the world's energy system and move towards net zero carbon in the name of climate. So clearly, Jürgen sees energy as critical to redrawing the world map. And that's the title of his very interesting book on this topic. It's called The New Map, and it's published by Penguin. So if you want to learn some lessons from the history, I suggest you go and read that book. It's a great read. Anyone interested in energy and how we got to where we are today can learn a lot from reading this. If we take a look at Russia's position in the world, then that's significantly changed over the past 40 years, since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet Union, Russia is trying to re-establish itself in the world as a superpower. And it's set about that task in a very odd way. I say odd, it's the traditional way. Invade your neighbours, try and be coercive, try and control things. It very seldom works as a grand strategy. But Russia has some great resources, and particularly it's an energy superpower more than anything else. It has gas and it has oil, two of the major fossil fuels that drive world economies, even today, when we reach for those goals to achieve climate change. But because it is such a superpower in those fossil fuels, the likelihood is that that power will fall as time moves on. And so the play now is even more important for Russia, given that time is not on their side. And because it is heavily reliant on the exports of oil and gas and the currency that that brings to the economy, it also places Russia at great risk. While Europe's gas problem may continue in the short term, and there'll be some pain, and of course there'll be some readjustment of prices as investments are made to find renewable sources of energy, it will perhaps do some good by lowering the dependency on fossil fuel. So pain for gain. And in the longer term, weaning economies away from fossil fuel has to be a good thing to secure the long-term future of the planet. So there's a silver lining in the cloud. In future, I'm guessing that the biggest sufferer will not be Europe, but those supplying the fossil fuels. And memories are long. Some commentators are labelling this disruption to the world gas market as Russia's economic war on Europe. And that being the case, that places a great deal of responsibility on the governments to ensure that it doesn't impact on the lives of people or on their industries. 
Well, that's it for this special edition on Europe's gas problem. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now. been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.